We're over in Judges chapter 4 with the next judge who comes on the scene, Deborah. In Judges chapter 4 verse 1, When Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Herosheth, Hagoyim. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, and Jabin had 900 chariots of iron. And for 20 years he harshly oppressed the children of Israel. <coughs> now the word there, harshly, or severely, depending upon your translation, it means strength or force. It's from the Old Testament, or from, it's used in the Old Testament to uh, note the harsh and cruel treatment and self-serving that people would use their strength and power for. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew, uses the word kratos, which denotes the possession of force or strength that affords supremacy or control. So he would take the strength that he had, and he used it to suppress, to severely, harshly treat the people of Israel. And so they were under that for 20 years. Now you look at... The book of Judges, and I saw this about it, I wrote it in here so that you would have it. Judges illustrates the difference between religious reformation and spiritual revival. Religious reformation and spiritual revival. Reformation temporarily changes outward conduct. That's all reformation does. Revival permanently alters inward character. Reformation temporarily changes outward conduct. Revival permanently alters inward character. And that's really all we ever see in the book of Judges is that they would reform. They would change their outward character, but inside they were not changed. And as soon as the person who led them in this new type of character went away, well, then they did their old things. Now, the term Canaanite here, most of the time it's used to refer to any non-Jews living in the area west of the Jordan. This particular time it's focusing on those in the north that united under, the, under Jabin. Now, if you remember in the book of Joshua, he conquered Jabin at the city of Hazor and destroyed Hazor. But apparently, there were enough of them around that they rebuilt Hazor and they got a new king. And Jabin is apparently the same kind of a name as Abimelech or Pharaoh or some of the other things that they would use where that name would just carry from one king to another. So it's not the exact same king because... That king was 100, 150 years earlier, and I don't think he fared so well. But through the general that he, that he has, which is Sisera, that is not the king, it is just the general, he exercised military control over about six of the northern tribes of Israel. He actually he pushed the area from Hazor all the way on down to just above the Sea of Galilee. So he's actually over that area of Galilee that we would know of, we, we know of. Verse 4, Now Deborah, prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. And she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah, they actually named the tree after her, because she was there so much, between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now they came up to her for judgment in that they wanted to see what the Lord would say. What does the Lord say about our situation? They wanted to get the, the word of God on this. Not so much that she was a, a uh, judge as we would think of a judge in a court, but they would come to her as a, as a prophetess. 
So she was judge and she was also a prophet. There is only one other person in Scripture who held both offices of judge and prophet. Any idea who that might be? Samuel. Very good. He is the only other one. So these are the only two that actually held both positions of judge and prophet. There are four other prophetesses in the Bible. Miriam was one, Huldah, the wife of Isaiah, and Anna. Now contrast that to the number of men that you have in that office. <laughs> now it's not so much that this is the only four women who were prophetesses, it's just they were the only four who were recorded. And there's probably also other men who were prophets and they just were not recorded. So there's, uh, we actually have reference to some other prophets who were men who were not recorded. So probably by the same token, you have a lot of other women who were prophetesses and just not recorded. So we're not saying that there's only four prophetesses in the Bible. There's only four named or in case of one's called the wife of the prophet, but <laughs> she also had the same office. Uh, there are also f uh, false prophetesses, far more false prophets. But we have two false prophetesses, and I listed them there in your outline if you ever want to go back there and, and look them up. Jezebel is one of them. Please understand and do not fall into the deception that so many do and write books on and get all kinds of money for it. Jezebel in the New Testament is not and has absolutely no reference to Jezebel of the Old Testament. Jezebel of the Old Testament is completely different. She did not pass herself off as someone spiritual. The Jezebel of the New Testament did. They are not the same. They had the same name. They did not have the same thing. And people, boy, they used to, it just irritates me. Maybe it does you too. People who want to take the spirit of Jezebel that they talk about in the New Testament and relate it to the Jezebel of the Old Testament. It is not the same thing. And when you do that, you miss what they're talking about in the book of Revelation with the Jezebel that's here in Revelation chapter 2. The idea here that someone has said there's only three kinds of people in the world, those who watch what is happening, those who make things happen, and those who scratch their heads and ask what is happening. Of these, if there are really only three types of people in the world, Deborah is probably number two. She is uh, one of those people that makes things happen. Harry Truman said, leadership is the ability to get men to do what they don't want to do and like it. That is a good, a good quote. Verse 6, Then she sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinoam, and Kadesh and Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor? Take with you ten thousand men of the sons of Naphtali and of the sons of Zebulun. And against you I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hand. So he's telling him, Go on down to this place, I will deploy the enemy against you. Boy, you're not good. How many of you want to go down to a certain place because God says, I'm going to deploy the enemy. I'm going to send the enemy down there against you. Now, as we've been talking about on Sundays, impossible situations are arranged so that the, the children of God can be promoted. That's why they're there. They're there for the children of God to be promoted, to gain wealth, to gain opportunity, to gain uh, notoriety. In the case of Daniel, Daniel gained notoriety, notoriety and from there on out, God gave him the visions, but no one would have listened to him if he had not interpreted the one from the king first. So God does these things if people will rise up and take the challenge. 
than Barak did. And when she says, uh, I will give him into your hand or I will deliver him into your hand, the word here is uh, in the the, uh, Septuagint, it is the word paradidomai, which signifies the giving of one over of someone or something to the power of another. The giving of one over of someone or something to the power of another. And so this is what God is saying. I will give him to you. I will take his power that they're exercising over you and I will give that power to you. And you will have it. Verse 8. And Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Now this sounds kind of bad right here because he's basically saying, As long as you go with me, I'll obey and do this. And that's not good. We should never be in a position that we would ever say, Well, I'll obey as long as so-and-so goes with me. As long as my spouse goes with me, as long as my friend goes with me, as long as my whatever goes with me. And that is not the case. That is not the case that should ever happen. But the um, Septuagint adds something here that apparently the people, the, the Hebrews knew something about this story that wasn't quite put into this translation. The added part is, for I do not know the day on which the Lord prospers or guides well the messenger of the Lord with me. In other words, what he's saying is this. I don't know how to recognize when the angel of the Lord or the messenger of the Lord is sent. And I won't go at the right time. He realizes that there is a good, a right time to go and a wrong time to go. The right time is when God sets it up. The right time is when God is going there and empowering the situation. The wrong time is when you're going on your own. And he says, I won't recognize it when I'm going on my own and I'll go on my own and it won't work out so well. So you come with me because you'll recognize when the hand of God moves and when the hand of God says, this is the time. Now that's great that he recognizes that there's a good time to go and a bad time to go. We want to go at the time of God. It is bad that he does not have this ability in himself to tell. Certainly he should. But there's a whole lot of folks like Barak who would hold back. And while I don't necessarily know when God would say, when the Spirit of God would move, I don't necessarily know how to recognize that. And shame on you. Get into a place where you recognize it. Grow yourself to that place where you can recognize when the hand of God is moving. When God is saying, this is the time. This is the place to go. We should not always be so tentative to not step out and do what God says. Always waiting. Well, let me wait and find out. I'll get some people to pray. And if they say that it's the right time, then I'll go ahead and do it. No, you need to learn it yourself. You need to get in that place. Because of this, Barak will not have the, uh, the glory that would have come to him. And that God intended for him to get. So she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And she was not referring to herself. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. So God had intended some glory to come to to Barak, but he decided not to take it. He was afraid of this part. He had, he had a lot of courage, but he knew he had to go when, when the messenger of God was there to go before them because the Lord's saying, I'm going to fight for you. He says, I need to recognize when that happens, and I don't know that I can recognize it. So Deborah, you come with me. And Barak called Zebulon and Naphtali and to Kadesh, he went up with 10,000 men under his command and Deborah went up with him. How many was he supposed to take? 
10,000. How many did he take? So he obeyed. How many of us, if we're going up against this great of a force, might have wanted to take some extras? But no extras were allowed. 10,000, that's what you take. Not 5,000. 5,000 would have been a disobedient, would not have been an act of faith. If God says take 10,000, you take 10,000. If God says you take 20,000, you take 20,000. If God th says you take 200, you take 200. You do what the Lord says. Verse 11, Now Heber, the Canaanite, of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had separated himself from the Canaanites and pitched his tent near the terebinth tree at Zanim, which is beside Kadesh. Now, in case you don't know sure who these folks are, the Canaanites are uh, basically relatives to Moses. Moses had gone up and married into the family. Uh, Jethro was the priest. And uh, they apparently were worshipers of Jehovah in at least some fashion or some sort. And so they tagged along with Israel when they went into the promised land and they settled in the south area. But this particular group, this particular family decided to move away for whatever reason. We're not told what the reason was. We're just told that they moved away and they went north. By comparison, I saw this as a comparison. I thought this is pretty good. It's by comparison if you were in this country and you lived in Florida and you moved to Vermont. That's about the perspective of what they would go. Except that Israel is about the size of New Jersey. <laughs> so it's not quite that far. But if I just said you were in South Jersey and you moved to North Jersey, it might not give you the same perspective as to where they moved. They moved pretty far away by the um, size of the country. They moved up to the north. This is far away from where their brethren are and where the rest of them are. And they moved up to here. And they reported to Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. So Sisera gathered together all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the people who were with him from Haresh Hagoyim to the river of Kishon. So what they do is they tell the movements of where Israel is going. This is not a bad thing because God wants to draw them out into the battle. And so when they find out that they're going to this place, they send their commander and they go on down there. But these particular Kenites, they kind of are, are they're, they're trying to be Switzerland. They're trying to be, you know, we're not on anybody's side. We don't want to make anybody mad. We don't want to make, make anybody angry. We don't want to make Israel angry. We don't want to make them mad. And so um, they just, you know, they, they don't stand up to much of anything. They don't seem to necessarily do this to come against Israel, but they don't want to necessarily stand up against the enemy. So you know, they, they, have a, they have peace with the Canaanites. and So that's, uh, they go ahead and give it. Now the Canaanites, again, they were told, the Israelites were told to wipe these people out, get them out of the place, take them out of the land. The Canaanites, these particular ones, were under, united under this one king in the northern area. The Canaanites had some worship practices that were similar to Ephesus. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the other places. Uh, very sexual in their worship. And so because of this, God knew these particular worships involved a lot of uh, sexual things. And much like Ephesus, you remember the stories in the New Testament of Ephesus. It's much like that. And it had a tremendous draw to people's flesh. And God knew if you let these kind of people in there, they're going to continue to worship this way and they're going to draw you in. And they did draw Israel in. And he said, you want them to wipe them out. And that's what they needed to do. To do. They needed to wipe them out. But they did not do that for quite some time. 
Verse uh, 14. Then Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? So see, she's determining when it is that the angel of the Lord or the messenger of the Lord is going out before the army. And she said, this is the day. This is the day you need to go. And so as soon as he hears that, he goes up and he takes his 10,000 men and he goes against all these chariots, which is a tough thing to do. It's hard to take 10,000 men and charge against an army that has all these chariots. They have all those chariots and and, uh, it's about a ratio of uh, three horses per chariot. And that's what you are facing. So Barak went down from the Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. In other words, he got off his chariot because it wasn't working. The only reason that you get out of a chariot is if it's not working. You don't get out of a perfectly working chariot because a perfectly working chariot is faster than people. It's more dangerous. You're more protected. There is no reason to leave a working chariot. When Israel faced the Egyptians, remember what happened to their chariots? They're driving around in the Red Sea area and their wheels are coming off and they're getting stranded and they got stranded in there and then the water just kind of folded back over top of them and, and they were done. God knows how to mess with chariots. And he certainly messed with these ones here. So the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Hareseth, Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. They wiped out the entire army that they had brought. They did not wipe out all of Jabin's empire or kingdom. They just wiped out the army that was sent after them. It was a good size army. It was a good number of what they had, but it was not everything. And over the coming years, they would eventually bring out more. But Deborah says to him, up. Basically, she's saying, arise, go. This is the time. And to his credit, as soon as he hears that, he's up and he's gone. How much better would it be if he was the kind of person who could tell the Spirit of God is going now. The angel of the Lord is going now. The messenger has gone before me now. And he, we should be able to, to tell those things. So again, an impossible situation offers promotion and advancement. Verse 17, however, Sisera, all the men died, but Sisera had fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Haber, the Canaanite. Now we have, once again, we had them brought in. They separated from the other Canaanites and they moved north. How would you like to be Jael? And she's sitting there, why am I here? Why did we move north? Why did we leave where we were with all of our relatives and come only out here? We're kind of in the middle of nothing and we're not really doing anything. All of a sudden, here it comes. For there was peace between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the house of Haber, the Kenite. Kind of interesting that they, they thought it necessary to make peace with this one little house over here. But they made peace for whatever the reason. And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord. Turn aside to me. Do not fear. Again, they're trying to be Switzerland. They're trying to be, you know, be on both sides and not be against anyone. And so he, she brings him on in. It was not customary in the East 
for a man to enter another woman's tent. That was not something that was done. But he's on the run. He's trying to hide. Turn aside, my Lord. Turn aside to me. Do not fear. And when he had turned aside with her into the tent, she covered him with a blanket. And then he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a jug of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. Now, I don't know if milk is all that she had or if she didn't want to give him what he wanted. Or Again, these are the, the track record of these people is we don't want to make waves with anybody. We want to be on everybody's side. And so it would seem that maybe that's all that she had. Maybe had some, but milk, I, would, I don't know. I like milk better than water. So it, it's kind of a, a nicer thing. The land of Canaan is not described as land flowing with water. It's a dis- land that's flowing with Milk and honey. So it's not like milk is a downgrade of water. Especially if you have Oreo cookies. Oreo cookies and milk, I mean, that's just... Now, I don't dunk them. I'm sure that's no surprise to any of you. No, no dunking of cookies for me. You eat the cookie, and then you take a drink of milk. <laughs> That's how I do it. There's other people I know that make those cookies all soggy and that just looks disgusting to me. Ugh. But here's the, here's the problem that comes in for, for, for Sisera. First off, he identifies himself that he is running. And she can tell that he's running from someone, that he's afraid of people that are chasing after him. Now, if you knew that a big battle was going on, that this is the commander of the army, of one army, and he's running... By himself. And then says to you, he's going to say this in a little bit, don't tell anybody that I'm here. (laughs) Guess who won? (laughs) So she knows who won the battle. By what he... He doesn't have to say that he, he lost the battle. He's just saying, I'm really tired. I need to rest. Don't tell anybody I'm here. That means you lost. Now, you're trying to be Switzerland. Trying to be neutral. But you just found out that these guys lost. That meant Israel won. So, what's the best thing to do? Play to the side who won. All right, so we'll let him. Obviously, if he's running and he's afraid that somebody's going to come and get him, they're on the way. They're coming. Yeah, come on in here. Rest. You know, have it have some milk. I know that warm milk puts you to sleep. Maybe she had warmed it up a little bit. She wants him to go to sleep. So he uh, falls asleep. And and he said to her, Stand at the door of the tent. And if any man comes and inquires of you and says, Is there any man here? You shall say no. So she told him to lie. Or he told her to lie. So she knows it didn't go so well. Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand and went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple. And it went down into the ground, for he was fast asleep and weary, so he died. So she took the tent peg, in case you can't quite get the picture of this, had it right there, took the hammer and bang! Hit that sucker. It penetrated the skull into the brain, went out the skull on the other side and into the ground. Now, that's probably going to kill him. <laughs> that's her intention. That's her intention. She's not trying to hurt this guy. You're just trying to hurt him. You hit him with the hammer. But she didn't do that. She hit him with the... Put the peg in between hitting him with the hammer. She's making sure he's going to be 
dead. So he's fast asleep and weary. I don't know that she would have rested that peg on the on his head and then hit it. She probably put it just before it, right? I mean, that's what I would do, put it just before it. So she doesn't want to wake him up, but he's so sleepy, he's just trusting these folks. So look at what God had set up. He had set up them to make a treaty with a family that seemed to be insignificant, a family that had moved away from their relatives out to this basically middle of nowhere, and he comes wandering into that area. Is she not in the right place at the right time? We would never know who this woman was. Had it not been for this incident, she would have lived her life and died and we never would have heard. She never would have made the Bible. No one ever would have heard who this person was. But she was in the right place and being in the right place, she did the right thing. Now here's what I can think is just uh, shocking. Why is he running to begin with? Does she have anything to do with him running? Nothing at all. He is running because God came against his army and Barak came down upon his army. She had nothing to do with it. But who do we think of in this particular battle? The woman who drove the tent peg through the general's head. All the other soldiers, they killed a whole lot more people. This woman took someone who was defenseless and killed him. Can you imagine you're Barak? And the glory goes to this woman who basically didn't do anything but be Switzerland all this time. What are you thinking? Why is everybody giving her all this, all this credit? I was the one who answered the call of God. I'm the one who came on down with the army. I'm the one who gathered the army. It is imperative. Is what, what God is showing us here. It is imperative that we learn how to recognize the move of God. To recognize when God is going. Because if you are not, and God calls you to do something for which you need to do it, yeah, He can raise up somebody else to help you out. But, who's supposed to do it? You are. He's expecting you to do it. Barak had Deborah there. And she was willing to go. And she went. And she did what he could have done. Because he didn't. She even said in the prophecy, Alright, I'll go. But the glory's not going to be yours. It's supposed to be. But now it's going to go to someone else. That battle would have ended differently. And his chariot wouldn't have just broke down someplace where he could run away. His chariot would have broke down someplace. And guess who would have been there? Barak would have been there. And he would have been the one taking down the, the general. It would have been general against general. But we didn't... Uh, at least I assume it was probably going to be that way. But he had to share it with someone who had nothing to do with the battle. Didn't set it up. Didn't obey God in any way. So she is the woman who got the glory. Verse 23, So on that day God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, in the presence of the children of Israel. And the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, king of Canaan. See, they didn't wipe him out all at one time. They became stronger and stronger. And Jabin became weaker until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. So he is going to go. They are going to destroy him. It's not a total victory, but it was the beginning of it. And the time was, was coming when he would be 
going down. I put here in your, in your outline here at the end, it is easier to go through life with someone like Deborah at our side to identify the way of God for us. But God desires we get there ourselves. God wants us to be able to identify the way of God. We should not have to keep running around to other people. Well, is the Spirit of God moving here? Is the Spirit of God moving there? What's the Spirit of God doing? I, I don't know. No, we need to learn. We need to listen. We need to learn from people who truly know how to follow the Spirit of God. Watch them. Look at how they hear the voice of God. Look at how they react to it. Look at how they move. And the goal is not to become dependent on them, but to see how they did it so we can do it ourselves. Someone once asked Brother Hagin, he says, what are you going to do if some of your students go out and do greater things than you did? His response was, well, if they don't, I'll get out there and kick them. He said, I've given them everything I know up to this point. They need to take that and go further. Yeah, that's what we should be doing. Going out there and going further. We need to be able to walk into a situation and sense the voice of God. Now, there are some people, you know, you can get into that. Here's another three kinds of people. There are some people who think they know the voice of God and don't listen to anyone else when they tell them that's not the voice of God. And they're going down a direction, but it's always wrong. And that's not good. The voice of God, the messenger of God, the angel of God will go before us and he will set the situation. He will make things go, go well for us when we get on out there. He'll help us. You can tell that. If that's not working, then we need to find some people who can help us to learn that voice of God. But there still will come a time when you have to be the one and you need to step out. Father God, I am trusting that this is you. I am trusting that this is the direction that you, you would go. I know there's been some decisions I've made in my life and you know, I felt the Spirit of God saying, yeah, this is the way to go. Go ahead. But I'll tell you what, I was nervous because it was a big step. It was a, it was a hard thing to do. But I, I did them and oh, they worked out so well. Oh, I mean, they just worked out so well. Now, some of them, I've related to many of them to you here, and some of them were tough at first. Some of them were, was not easy at the beginning. But you just get, well, no, God, I know that you, you told me to go this direction. I know this is the way that you led me to go, and I'm listening to that, and this is what we're going to do. And that's the way we have to, we, we, this is the way we learn it. Learn the voice of God. Learn how to flow with the voice of God. We are listening to a guy this week and uh, he was talking about, you know, if you knew that the Lord was coming in four years, what would you do? And people would say, well, I would quit my job and I would go out and I'd do this and I would do this. And he said, and he, his response was, well, I wouldn't do that. I would isolate myself for three and a half years, do nothing but seek after God. And in six months, I'd probably do more than I would have done in four years. <laughs> and uh, I get the idea. The idea is we need to sharpen ourselves spiritually and get ourselves ready. Too often, we always just be busy. Too often, we'll take off four years and we'll just get working. We'll just get busy for God. It is not good enough to be busy for God. You've got to be smart. You've got to be effective. You've got to listen to the voice of God. If you listen to the voice of God, then He, he says things to you, speaks things to you. Oh, I'll tell you what. It is amazing what God will speak to you in the area of Revelation. I can study and study and study the Word of God 
for hours and hours and hours and not get what I can receive from him in 30 seconds. Sometimes I tell you, I've, I've, I've received things 10, 15 seconds all it took. And I've received stuff that I could chew on for weeks. I could go and, and, and work hard and work hard and work hard and never get it. There is something about hearing that voice of God. There is something about knowing this is the direction that God is saying to go. And when he says to go in that direction, you go in that direction. And you stay with it. And you don't back off. No matter what comes your way. But you've got to be sharp. You've got to be ready. You've got to be willing to hear. You know, there's a whole lot of professions out there that have what they call continuing education credits. That uh, I know nursing is one of them. My mom used to always have to do them. Uh, there's other ones. I think financial probably has those kind of things as well. Uh, in which you have to continually go out there and learn. Because the field is always changing. And it's demanded that you learn and keep up with it. Because they know if you will spend some time learning, then when you are working, you are better equipped. You'll make better decisions. Things will go better. We need to have that time when we sharpen ourselves spiritually and so that I can hear what God says and respond to it. Not think I'm hearing what God says, but no, no, the Lord spoke this to me. The Word of God came to me and He said, go this way, do this. Not just for things that are super spiritual, but also for things that are just in our life. Just jobs and things to get things to buy. God will give you wisdom. He'll help you out with stuff. Oh, yeah, this was the best thing. If I would have got that other one, oh, it would have been so much worse. But I got this one because I just felt the Spirit of God telling me to hold off, hold off, and then this one showed up and He'll help you out, even those little things, because He wants your time to work well. He wants it to be efficient. One place I certainly learned this is uh, just when we were over at school and we were running and we were doing all sorts of stuff. Running, it, it, my, my problem was never that I wouldn't work hard enough. My problem is I wouldn't work smart. There were, I'd never had any problem working hard. I would outrun anybody on the team. I would, in the course of a year, I ran probably twice as many miles as any other person on the team because I ran all year long. I never stopped running. I ran every single day. I ran in the winter. I ran in the summer. I ran when it's hot. I ran when it's cold. I didn't care what it was. I ran. I ran. I ran. I didn't take any time off. I ran hard. I would go out and every single time I ran, I ran as fast as I could. I ran hard. I didn't run smart. Got to run. You got to do things smart. Being smart is a whole lot better. I could run 100 miles in a week and averaged 100 miles a week during the off season. I would run 100 miles a week. I thought nothing of it. It's no big deal. And every single time I ran, I ran one pace as fast as I could go. But I wasn't smart. I've read things on it now and I've realized how stupid I was in the way that I ran. I didn't run smart. I needed to take some days and just go out and just run slower. Intentionally run slower. And then other days run faster. And then run slower. And then run fa- and mix it up a little bit. And we would fall into this thing. I didn't even know that, that it was possible. But um, 
you could run into, you could come into overtraining. I overtrained continually. I overtrained so bad in my, I think it was my first year, my, no, it was probably my second year of college. I overtrained so bad. I just kept running. We were running three races a week. I would do two speed workouts a week, and the rest of the time I would do distance. I ran seven days a week. And I got injured towards the end of the season. Injured a knee. And so I couldn't practice anymore. And so I didn't practice until the time for the next race. And then I'd run the next race and I'd re-injure it. And I wouldn't practice until the next race. And I'd run the next race and I'd re-injure it. And I wouldn't practice at all. No running at all until the next race. And that went on for three weeks. And you know what happened? I got faster. <laughs> Every race I got faster because I was finally giving my body a little bit of a break. I've read things on, the, on now and now I know some of the things that they've learned. I could have run half the miles and gone faster if I ran smarter. You've got to be smart when you do it. And be, being smart just means you, 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 understand, you have a greater understanding on the thing. God wants you to have a greater understanding of how to get through life. We're struggling. We're struggling to get through. We're struggling to get this done. We're struggling to get that done. And God wants to just speak things to us to help us out with it. Let Him speak things to you. Let Him teach you how to hear, how to recognize that the angel of the Lord is going now. Don't wait for a Deborah. Be along your side all the time. Be ready to make that decision. Be ready to go into the battle that God has called you into and be ready to recognize when God says this is the time. To Barak's credit, as soon as she said, it's the time now, he didn't hesitate. He got right, right in there and got to going. He was a courageous man. He was a brave man. But he didn't feel he would recognize when God would be ready to go. When God had moved, he didn't think he would be able to follow it. Don't be in that situation. Get yourself in a place where you can hear the voice of God and have every confidence that when He speaks something to you, this is what He wants you to do. This is what He wants you to do. God was not pleased. Spoke it out through the prophetess. He was not pleased that Barak felt like he needed help. All right, I'll go with you and I'll help you. But your glory's not coming to you now. It's going to someone else. That's a, prop that's a prophetic statement. That's kind of a prophetic statement comes from God, which means God is not happy. Let's make God happy with how we live. Let's see ourselves grow and listen to what God wants to do. Not always be dependent on other people to learn from them, but not always be dependent. Let's get ourselves to a place where, Father God, I know that you spoke this to me and I'm ready to step out on those things. Father, we thank you for the help that you give us. Thank you for the help that you give us in leading us in life, that we don't have to just work hard, we can work smart. I thank you for the great help that you give us in that. Because you want our time to be used efficiently, to be used well, and to be productive, and to be ready. And when you say, this is the time, seize it, go after it. We are ready because we know we are hearing the voice of God. We are hearing what you say. We thank you for it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.